Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. All right, uh, go ahead and get started, I guess. Well, good morning. Uh, once again, glad to be back here, uh, able to um, talk to you again this week um, about a different character in the Bible, a different um, often forgotten character, um, as our topic is. Um, a few weeks ago, um, I talked on uh, Deborah, uh, a judge of ancient Israel from obviously from the book of Judges. Uh, and this week I'm going to talk on another judge um, from the book of Judges. And uh, namely the one that follows right after Deborah. Uh, if you know that and you want to kind of be heading to that area uh, starting in Judges 6. Um, but if you'll recall, I'll kind of do kind of a brief summary of kind of the backdrop uh, of the book of Judges. Um, and then we'll go ahead and get started with that. If you recall, the backdrop is that Moses had led the Israelites up to the promised land. Um, and then he passed away. And then Joshua took over as the helm uh, of leader. And he has led them into the promised land to take the land that God has promised would be theirs. But there is that problem that this land is occupied by idol worshippers. Uh, This land is occupied, and it's occupied by strong and thriving nations of people. And we see over and over again in the Bible that God has commanded the Israelites to take these lands and to take it by force. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 20, verse 16 uh, starts there. that says, But of the city of these people which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. And so we have the beginning of the book of Judges. Um, Joshua has passed away, and the Israelites have still not done what they've been commanded to do by conquering the land and driving out those idol worshippers. And so as what naturally happens... Uh, they begin to intermingle with one another and they begin to do evil in the Lord's sight. And this all happens because they let those people stick around and they have marriages and they have children and they begin to worship their gods. And so God became angry and punished them by allowing their enemies to oppress them. Because of the severe oppression, they would cry out to God and He would send them finally a leader. And in case, in this particular case, a judge, uh, which we talked about before, sort of that warrior leader. Uh, it's not a judge how we think in the typical sort of sense today. And so he would send them this leader to deliver them from their enemy, and they would serve the God, uh, serve God while this judge was around. Uh, and you can see this sort of this cycle that continues to happen in Judges chapter two, um, starting in verse eleven, and it goes through nineteen. There it says, "Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served Baal." They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped the various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to anger, 
because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths uh, in his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to the raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from, uh, from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way in of, of obedience of the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who had oppressed them and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to their ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And so as we talked about um, last time with Deborah, we're going to kind of see this again. It's just this cycle, a continual cycle. A judge will be raised up. They'll follow during that period of time, uh, however long that judge may last, and they'll be faithful during that. They'll have uh, military success during that period of time. But then once that judge goes away, they go right back to the way that they were before, uh, most of the times uh, worse than they were before. And so you have this cycle that continues. And at the end of chapter 5, where we finish that study uh, of Deborah, it, it shows that. It says, so the land had rest for 40 years. And then starting at verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's where we'll pick up today uh, with our character uh, as we get into Gideon's story. Uh, but first, I wanted to kind of tell a quick little uh, funny story uh, I like to do that in lessons. I've tried to stay away from them because Katie always makes fun of me for telling stories uh, during lessons. And, um, but I want to tell this story, and it's, it you know, has a punchline at the end, so if it's not funny, just humor me uh, and laugh anyhow. Uh, and um, I can promise you, you won't discourage me by not laughing. I'll continue to tell more stories. Um, but it sort of... Um, has a point to, to what I want to really focus in toward the end of this lesson. Uh, and, it, and if you've heard it before, just you know, kind of go along with it. But the story begins like this. There was this man who wanted to invis, uh, investigate the Christian life, the Christian lifestyle in America. Uh, and so he decided he would go around to the various churches in, in the U.S. Uh, and he decided that he would start out in, in California and in San Francisco and kind of work his way from, from the west all the way out to the east. And so he gets to this first church uh, and in the atrium, he sees this golden phone. And right beside this phone on a little plaque, it said, $10,000 a minute. And so he was, he was dumbfounded uh, by this. And so he went to go find, find the preacher. And, and he asked the preacher, you know, why does this phone have this little plaque that, beside it that says $10,000 a minute? And well, the, the preacher said, well, that phone is a direct line to heaven. And so that's why it's so expensive. And so sure enough, he as he continued uh, his his study of the of the church, the of the Christian lifestyle, he was working his way west and he was stopping at all the various states, hitting every major town, and then finally he gets to Alabama, a church here in Alabama. And uh, he stops in and he walks into this church and sure enough there it is again. He sees another golden phone. And but beside this phone, it says, 29 cents a minute. 
And so he's confused, like, what's, what's different with this one? How come it's so much cheaper? I've got to find the minister. And so he goes out there and he says, I've been to all these churches you know, around the U.S. and everywhere, $10,000 a minute is just the exorbitant price. How come here in Alabama it's just 29 cents a minute? And he says, well, son, you're in Alabama now and it's a local call. So wouldn't it be great um, if we could have God on speed dial? Uh, wouldn't it be great if we could just call him up and uh, I'm sure probably no matter what the price, people would use that phone uh, to be able to talk to him, be able to hear uh, his wisdom, the answers uh, that he would dole out um, to each of us. And that would be great and a wonderful thing um, that he would just always seem to have the right and the perfect answer. And I suppose if we had that, it would diminish the, the role that faith has to play in our lives. Um, but I know that even if we did have this sort of direct line to God, uh, if we could talk to Him here on earth um, through that golden phone, we would still make mistakes. You had Adam, Eve, Moses, and the various prophets who had this direct relationship with God and the, they had these direct commandments from God, and yet they still made these mistakes even though they know what they were being told was the truth and was the answer. And so, we don't have that direct line. There's no amount of money we could pay to know that we're making the right decision, that we're, we've come up with the right answer. Uh, and so instead, in, in times of our life, each of us, we begin to ponder, because we don't have that direct line, just what is the answer. Am I making the right decisions in my life? If, if you're in school, if I'm, if I'm studying the right things, uh, if, you're, if you're out and you have a career, if, if I'm in the right career field, if the things that I'm dedicating my life to, that, you know, that sort of that nine to five sort of career that I, I do, is this where I'm meant to be? Uh, did, I, did I go to school for the right things and now I'm in, in the right you know, position? Do I need to go back to school, do something different? Am I making the right decisions for my family, with my spouse, with my children? Uh, Of all the decisions that I make, how is it going to impact them? Am I doing what I was meant to do in my life? Am I following my calling? Well, have you ever had a calling in your life before? And do you think that you found yours? Oftentimes we can, we can look out to, to people we see uh, kind of in the public eye and say that person has found their calling. That person's doing what they were meant to do. We might could look at somebody like uh, Michael Jordan or, or LeBron James and go, that, that man was meant to play basketball. He's the greatest to ever do it. You might look at someone like Tom Brady or, or some other football or athlete and said, was meant to play football. One of the best to ever do it. Well, I didn't grow to be six foot ten. Um, so uh, basketball was not my calling. Um, I can't run a 4-2-40 or anything like that. So uh, football really didn't work out. And so I think sometimes people maybe have it a little bit easier when they're that tall or or certain things just seem to work out that the calling just sort of falls into, into place. But that doesn't 
work for the most of us. I, I'm not sure, but I don't think we got any NBA stars or NFL stars here in the audience, but we're all just regular folks, you know, working our, our, our normal jobs. And so we have those questions, you know, am I doing what I was called to do in my life? Am I following my calling? Think on that as, as we begin to study Gideon. Now, Gideon kind of covers three chapters, and I don't know if I'll have time to just read each chapter all the way out. I'll try to do my best, but there may, be, may come a point if we end up close on time that I may have to summarize some things. But starting in verse, um, chapter 6, starting in verse 1, uh, it reads as follows. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves dens, the caves, and the strongholds, which are in the mountains. So it was whenever the Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, and also the Amalekites, excuse me, uh, and the people of the east would come up against them. Uh, that they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock, their tents, come in numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage and delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians and out of the hands of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave, gave you their land. And I also said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so a, quick, a couple quick points. Uh, as we kind of stop right there. Um, the Midianites had been raiding the Israelites for seven years. Um, and that this is, once again, God punishing the Israelites for falling away and not doing what they're supposed to do, not listening to the commandments. And so they've been raiding them for seven years, and they would come and they would destroy the produce of the earth. And so they weren't constantly being inhabited by the Midianites, but that they would come during the time of harvest and take away the things the Israelites have grown or raised. And so next, this resulted in sort of this great poverty for Israel. The nation was being left destitute uh, because there was not enough food. And they were probably thinking that, you know, well, we had it better in Egypt. You hear that up a lot of times that the Israelites would complain either in the desert or uh, even while they're in the promised land that when we were in Egypt, at least we had the clothes on our backs and we had food and it was a consistent way of life. Even though we were slaves to the Egyptians, we knew what we had. But God, another point here, God sent that prophet to them and said, I'm the God who took you up out of Egypt and out of the house of bondage and I delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians and out of the hands of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so that's the problem. It's worse than it was in Egypt, uh, in Egypt because they have not obeyed the voice of God. 
And so what happens oftentimes here in the book of Judges, God is going to raise up another judge. And so we have Gideon. Moving down just a little bit, um, it says, starting at uh, kind of midway through 11, and while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our father told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall serve Israel from the hand, or excuse me, you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And then he said to him, If now I have found favor favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from, from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. And so Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread and flour. And then he put in a basket and put the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And the fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon bought an altar there to the, or built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day is in, still in in Oprah, uh, or Ophrah, excuse me, uh, of the Abizarites. Like I said, I'm not an expert in pronouncing all those names, um, but you get the gist of it. And so something I want to stop right there. Um, how did Gideon first consider himself to be? When you think of these judges, uh, the, the ones we've talk, talked about in the Bible, we've talked about Deborah and her military success. You think of other judges like Samson and things like that. These are strong, powerful people. These are military leaders. You know, they're probably sort of a type A sort of personality. That's sort of what they are. Uh, they're probably a go-getter. Um, and that's what you think when you think about a judge. Someone's going to lead the military uh, there for the Israelites. But if I had one maybe characteristic to describe Gideon in that first uh, bit that we read, it's that he was timid. When we're first introduced to him, when the angel comes there, that he's in a wine press threshing wheat, that he was hiding from the Midianites and that he had a fear of them. And that when he was presented with uh, the angel of the Lord, he was doubtful because he believed God wasn't really there because of the situation that the Israelites were in. And then he even went on to say that I'm the weakest. I'm from the, the smallest clan. 
of, of our tribe, and I'm the weakest of the clan. He doubted himself. He was afraid because he didn't think that he had the ability to lead. And so he asked for a sign. And this is it. I mean, this is what for all of us, what we look for when we're trying to determine if we're doing the right thing. If you're really trying to determine, am I following my calling? Am I doing what I'm meant to do? What do we always say? God, give me a sign. Show me in some sort of way that I'm doing the right thing. I'm going to flip this coin and if it lands on heads, I'll go left. And if it lands on tails, I'll go right. Show me a sign, God. Gideon is just like us in this situation. If I'm going to do the right thing, I've got to know that it's the right thing. Show me a sign. And so he did. But think for a second, how did the Lord consider Gideon? In verse 12, he was considered a mighty man of valor when, God, when the angel of the Lord first talked to him. Verse 14, he was one who was able to save Israel. In verse 16, he was a man that the Lord considered himself to be with. In verse 23, he was at peace with Gideon. God's got a different viewpoint of Gideon than what we read. He sees more than what's on the surface. So we'll just sort of summarize uh, this next point. Um, Gideon did um, as he was his, his commanded. He was commanded to take his father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal uh, that his father had there and, and cut down the wooden image and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and to take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the Lord of the image which you shall cut down. And so Gideon took men from among his servants and did as the Lord said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. And so they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, and they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has tore down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to those who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on, on that day, they called him Jerubbabel, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has, he has torn down his altar. And so we can see that slight change in Gideon once he begins to follow what his calling is. He begins to become more courageous. That he did what he was commanded to do. He went and he tore down the idol, went and tore down the altar. But he wasn't all the way there yet because he was still a little bit scared. He was nervous about it. I don't want to do it during the day. Someone might see. Someone might try to stop me. What it says there in the text that he decided to do it by nighttime because he feared 
his father's household, and the men of the city. And he knew that he was probably going to be making some enemies by doing this. Something else we can pull from, from that section of verses. Gideon really probably didn't think that his father was going to end up supporting him the way that he did. Because he was fearful of his father's household. And this is something that would have confirmed that he's doing the right thing. That he's following his calling. Because he got that unexpected support of his father. Because you never know what will happen when you decide to take action. And so continuing on, um, we'll pick up and we'll kind of summarize the, the, the rest of this. Uh, the Midianites and their allies begin to uh, gather um, and then Gideon uh, takes uh, his tribe and some of the other tribes of, of Israel and they go and they begin to gather as well um, for this uh, upcoming battle that's going to happen. And he gathers the, and sends messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came to meet him. And so you have sort of, as, as chapter 6 ends there, sort of this um, beginning of the battle that's about to happen in, in chapter 7, as both parties sort of amass the forces that they have. And Gideon does it again. You know, I, you know, I took down the altar that, you know, was my father's, and, you know, I was facing probably the wrath of uh, my father and his people and the men of the city, but well, now I'm about to face the Midianites and all their allies. Probably getting a little bit nervous. Probably wondering if he was doing the right thing. Because it seems like he's going to be outnumbered. And so he asked God for another sign. He asked God uh, that he's going to take this, this fleece and that he's going to put it out uh, on the threshing floor, and that if there's dew only on the fleece and not on the surrounding area, that Gideon, I'll know if that happens, that God, God is with me when I do this thing. And so that's what happens. But Gideon's still not so sure. He says, well, well, let the reverse happen. Maybe that might have just been, you know, just luck. Maybe that might have just been chance. And so he asked there at the end of, end of chapter 6, let the dew be all around, but not on the fleece. And so that happens. Again, he was seeking the divine confirmation that God was on his side because he was about to face an army. Instead of just his father's people, Gideon asked for a sign. He asked for a sign because he was unsure. And both those signs presented itself and he knew that God was with him and he knew that he was following what he was supposed to do. And so that's when we move in into chapter 7. We'll try to speed this along because we'll have to get through 7 and, and 8. But you have chapter 7 which is kind of the most um, more well-known story when you think of Gideon um, when he goes out to meet the Midianites uh, for battle. And you have kind of starting there in verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim for glory for itself against me, saying, 
my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart, and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And then it will be that of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, the same shall go with you, and of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Whoever laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on their knees to drink, and the number of those who lap, putting their hands to their mouth, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, By the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you, and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel and every man to his tent and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And we'll kind of stop there. And uh, You have sort of this beginning of Gideon has these 32,000 men. And we learn for a little bit in, in chapter 8 there, even with the 32,000 men, he was still going to be greatly outmatched numbers-wise. That it still was going to be a difficult battle. And you have that where, where God says to him, where he's telling how to whittle down the numbers, you know, lest Israel say that they've done this by their hand, let's work the numbers down. That it still would have been a miraculous victory, even without that. But God doesn't want to give them that out. He wants it to be no doubt. Must there be no doubt that it's a miracle and it's through God that this has happened? And so Gideon's left with 300 men. And then you have this moment, kind of continue on, that will summarize this, this next part. Uh, God tells Gideon that he can take his servant and go down into the camp of, of Midian and, and their allies, and that to listen there, if you're still not sure about whether or not you will be delivered from your enemies here. Whether or not you will conquer them. And so you have this scene where Gideon goes down with his servant, and he hears these two individuals talking about uh, how one had this dream about the tents being uh, taken over or, or falling over, and that the other one then interprets it that, that you know that must be Israel coming to destroy us. And so when Gideon heard this, he returned back to his, his camp or his, where his military was and he was confident about what would occur. And so they begin to, to form this, this strategy uh, and he says kind of uh, at the end of verse 15, kind of picking up there, Arise for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Then he divided 300 men into three companies and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I, blow my, when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, and then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And so they do this thing. Uh, they go down there and they surround the camp of Midian and, its, and their allies. Uh, and they do as what Gideon has been commanded uh, by God to do and as Gideon commanded them. And so they do this, and it kind of creates this panic. 
creates this panic uh, by Midian and, and its allies. And they don't know who's there. They don't know who's friend, uh, who's foe in this moment. And they kind of turn sword on each other because of all this great confusion that's going on. And so the army of the Midianites and their allies begins to decimate themselves. And that's sort of how chapter 7 finishes there. Um, They capture a couple of the princes uh, of the Midianites, but uh, some of the the group of the Midianites and their allies have fled. And uh, they they begin to sort of try to track after them and and try to run them down. And that's where we get uh, into the start of chapter 8. But just a few points about 7 before we move on. Um, The Lord wanted to prove that He was in control. That Gideon advanced uh, against the enemy and encamped near the brook of Harad. Um, That the army of the Midianites and their allies numbered approximately 135,000. Whereas the Israelites mustered only 32,000. You see, even in that moment, Gideon was greatly outnumbered. But Gideon, if you'll notice here, he didn't question the Lord this time. And it wasn't Gideon who said, Lord, show me another sign. That like, I'm only going to have 300 men. How is this going to happen? You know, show me another sign. It wasn't Gideon who said that this time. It was God who instructed him to go down and to listen uh, to the Midianites and their allies. And that's where he hears about this vision, that this, or this dream this man had had. So it's not Gideon asking for another sign necessarily this time. And so Gideon's left with this army of 300 men and all of the faint-hearted go home and all the people who didn't drink water and the way that God um, told Gideon to look for uh, were sent home and it reduced him to 300. And the Lord gave Gideon the information to strengthen his resolve and the Lord provided this assurance And Gideon didn't ask for it. God showed him this time that he was doing the right thing. God showed Gideon that he was on the path to following his calling. And so that's what happens as we we just talked about. And as we go into chapter 8, they're in pursuit of some of the the Midianites and their allies who have made it and gone away and and are retreating. And so you have... um, as you go into chapter 8, and we'll kind of summarize it, there's some points I want to make here at the end. Um, chapter 8 begins uh, with another tribe with the men of Ephraim uh, basically being upset or envious of why they were not called um, with Gideon and the people who went out. Um, Gideon basically praises them and sort of minimized himself in this moment um, and, he, and sort of repairs that sort of relationship with them, you can see there kind of at the end of chapter 3, that then their anger toward him subsided when he said that to them. And so going in into, to verse 4, continuing on, um, Gideon and his men, they've just been in a battle. You know, these are men who have been traveling. These are men, it's probably hot out there. And um, they're probably running low on food. And so he tries to stop in a couple of different cities. And the Bible even talks about that he pursued the Midianites even with the little sustenance that he had. And he asked at these two different cities for bread or for sustenance. And in both of those, he was denied. Uh, And he basically tells them, when we return from capturing those who have fled from the battle, you're basically going to get 
you know, your just desserts what, you know, what you deserve for denying us. And so he chastises the elders in, in one city and he says that he'll tear down the tower in another. And so eventually uh, Gideon does capture those enemies of Israel um, and eventually executes them in verse chapter 20, or excuse me, in verse 21 of chapter 8. And he goes back and he does repay those two cities for not providing um, for Gideon and for the, the, the military that he had for not providing any sustenance for them. Um, and he repays them for what they decided to do. And then we get toward the end of chapter 8. And we'll start there in verse 28. It says, Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. If you don't recall, um, when we studied Deborah, 40 years was exactly the same amount of time that it was peaceful um, during the time of Deborah. And that's a very long time, and I think it speaks to the type of leader, uh, the military leader that Gideon turned out to be. But continuing in, in 29, it says, Then uh, Gideon, the son of Joash, went and uh, dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in uh, Shechem, also bore him a son who he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at the good old age, and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father. <clears throat> and that kind of concludes um, Gideon's sort of tale, kind of ends right there, and we kind of move on to a few other things um, um, that occur after that. But one other sort of point I wanted to, to make was that um, earlier in, in chapter 8 uh, and 22, it says, The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you, but the Lord shall rule over you. And something else is sort of poured out by Gideon right, right, right there. He had the opportunity to be king. He had the opportunity presented to him uh, by the Israelites there, or that it was their request. And he says, no. He says, the Lord shall rule over you. I think that really speaks to his character, but there's four points I want to make here in the last few moments that we, we have. Four points I want to make about Gideon and following your calling. Number one is that we have all been called. You see, Gideon was personally chosen by God. He was picked out uh, to be a judge, to be that military leader. But as New Testament Christians, you know, there is no one person that's picked out among us to be the leader, no person that will lead us, uh, no church that is over all of us, uh, nothing like that. As New Testament Christians, we have all been given the opportunity to serve Him in unique ways. We have all been given the opportunity to be saved. We have all been called. For God so loved the world that He gave His only one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That whoever wants to. You see, God still calls us today. 
No, not as a voice in the sky, not sending his angel uh, like he did with Gideon. But through his word, we are called. And we are called to live a life after the pattern that Christ has set out for us and devote our lives to his teachings and the inspired words of the apostles. We have all been called to live as Christ-like examples because we are all being called home. Ephesians 5 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are called to be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ. And we are being called home. John 14 Verse 2 says, My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. We have a home that's been prepared for us. And we are being called back home. Number two, when we are called, sometimes there might be setbacks or obstacles to overcome. Uh, We can think there with Gideon, the insurmountable odds of Gideon's battle, and and also um, the setbacks that he had when he had to pursue the Midianites about the the lack of sustenance that he had. And when when we think when we are being called, we think everything's going to go according to plan because I'm doing what God wants me to do. And everything's just going to be right, and everything's just going to be good, and everything will go our way. But that's not the way it is. You see, often we use this phrase that if we're following or calling or we're doing the right thing, that we're on the straight and narrow. That we're on the straight and narrow. But Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 14 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. You see, that path is narrow, because few find it. But I think we've taken that colloquial phrase and we've, and we've misinterpreted it because it never does it say that it's straight. You see, our call home, our call home to heaven is often a winding path that often seems to double back on itself. And sometimes we wonder if we're ever going in the right direction. But all along, we have the constant reminder of Christ and Him calling us home. So yes, the road is narrow, but hardly ever is it straight. But we also have Christ there calling for us. Number three, our calling will lead us to make tough decisions that don't seem to benefit us. Oftentimes it seems like having faith in God just doesn't seem to benefit us secularly. You see, oftentimes we think of these mo- the most successful people in our lives, these billionaires, these millionaires, uh, these people who've had just great success monetarily or any sort of thing that you can imagine, most of them aren't the most God-fearing people. They always seem to have a new car and a new house. And they always seem to come out on top. They always seem to flourish. And we are forced to watch as they lead that rich lifestyle. You see, Gideon could have been king. The people wanted him to be king. But he had to make a tough decision that really didn't seem to benefit him. At least from a secular standpoint. He said, no, the Lord 
shall rule over his people. And so I tell you that making the right decision, it gets you something different. It gets you something different that those billionaires multiple times over, those people who are so successful, have too much money to even think about. Something that they'll never have that a Christian will always have. And it's peace of mind. A peace that surpasses all understanding. No man who has made the right decision for the right reasons will ever one day sit back and wonder, what if I would have made the decision that benefited me the most but hurt others? Peace of mind. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? For and lastly, our call will often lead us to make uh, or make us make decisions that we don't want to make. Often God will test our faith and force us to make decisions that we really don't want to make. Those decisions will force us to make the tough choices. Just like Gideon had to choose between God and angering all of his family by destroying the idols. And he was scared to do it, and that's why he did it at night. But he still did it. It was a tough decision. He didn't know if anyone in his family would ever support him. He didn't know if anyone would be there. And he was scared to face the Midianites. But he still did it. God will call us to make the tough calls. And he makes us ask ourselves... Do we value God over possessions, over our idols, over our relationships with others? God asked us the tough questions, so be prepared to give the tough answers. Following your calling will involve sacrifice. I want to make that clear. It's not an easy road. It will involve sacrifice at your work, your school, and your home life. So be prepared to answer, do you serve God? Or do you serve man? And so what will your answer be? So are you following your calling? And I'm almost finished here. Are the decisions that you make in your school life, your work life, and your home life, are they saying that God is calling me home and I'm answering Him? And you know it's tough to make those decisions that call you to rely upon faith and to trust in God because we don't have that telephone straight to heaven. We are called to trust on our God because we are His children. For Gideon, his calling took him from hiding in a wine press to leading God's people to victory over their enemies. Where will your calling take you and will you make the right decision? And so one last thing and the lesson will be yours. To illustrate this point, where will your calling take you? In England in August of 1939, King George VI ordered what is called Operation Pied Piper, which was set in motion the day after they proclaimed it. They evacuated all the children and took them away from the bomb-torn areas of London so children by the thousands were flocked to the train station with little tags that looked just like little suitcase tags with their name, their address, who their parents were, and vital information. And many were chaperoned by their teachers and were separated from their parents. And it's to my understanding that, and this one's for for, for free, that that a quarter of the entire population was relocated. But at first, the children which were boarded onto the trains and moved to the safer parts of the country, and most were sent up to Scotland and areas in in North uh, England. And one of the stories that emerged from this moment centered on a a brother and his little sister who had been placed on one of these trains with their little tags. And of course, these children, they're scared because they're children. 
They're scared of being separated from their parents and they're very anxious because many of them did not know where they would be going. And so as the train begins to pull out of the station, that little girl, that little boy's little sister starts crying. And the little boy, he brushes away his own tears and then he brushes away his little sister's tears. And he puts his hand around his little sister and he says, I don't know where we're going either. But the king knows, so don't worry. And that's the best answer I can offer you today. I don't know where your calling may take you, but our king knows, and I have faith in him. And if you do too, and I trust that one day he will call both of us home. Thank you for your time and attention. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.